Welcome to Ormwood Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and to our podcast where we share our Sunday sermons for those in Ormwood Park, Atlanta, and beyond. Our mission is to welcome everyone to explore the living God in all of our neighborhoods, and we value welcoming others, opening our minds, being of service, and participating in whatever ways God calls us. We hope you learn, grow, and find a place to belong with us. I was introducing our sermon series last week by reminding folks that at the start of every new year, we do a sermon series about our identity as a church. We've done the mission statement a few times. We've done our values. Reminders are good. Um, And in the last week or in the last year, 2022, we had our five-year worshiping anniversary in October. So we're actually starting to ask some questions about longevity and establishing deeper roots. One of these questions circles around our connection with the Presbyterian Church. I'm ordained in the PCUSA. Um, We have been generously funded by this Presbytery of Greater Atlanta, and we're we're worshiping in a building that is owned by the PCUSA as well. So the connections are there, but we haven't explicitly ever examined how significant they are or what flavor of Christianity Presbyterian is. So if you were here last week, we talked about how Presbyterians try to be open to God's ever-changing call for the church, echoing that Latin Reformation phrase, um, we are reformed and always being reformed by God. But this week, we're going to take a look at that big question of who is God? Who Um, is the God who is forming and reforming us. And we actually did a sermon on who is God in the discipleship series this time, about this time last year. Um, But we're asking that question again, because it's more or less foundational to why we even head to church on Sunday morning in the first place. So I am going to start way back in our faith tradition with a passage in Exodus that many of you find quite familiar, I'm sure. It's that story of Moses learning a bit more about who God is in the wilderness. So Listen now for a word from God in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock by the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it wasn't consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And God said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, and I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. Now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. 
When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is God's name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So who is God? Where should we start in answering this question? Um, And let me just clear the air and say that there's no easy answer to this, right? The Methodists say that you should always consider four components when thinking theologically, tradition, experience, scripture, and reason. Uh, More hierarchical models might say God is who those in power say God is. Um, So God is then defined by the people in authority. Less hierarchical models might say, look within to find God. And for as many answers as there are to the question, who is God, there are models and paradigms and thick theological books and experiences to back them up. So where does that leave us? Should we just give up? Should we throw up our hands? No. We could actually say instead that the life of faith is actually this posture, this act of coming back to this question over and over again. It is returning to the relationship of God and finding it, like all relationships, a lifelong endeavor to know deeper that which we love. The Presbyterian tradition has a series of confessions or statements about what historically situated communities believe about God. The Westminster Catechism is one of these guiding confessions, probably the most historically popular one. And in the shorter catechism, it asks in its first question, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? And the answer is to glorify God, so to participate in this radiant goodness of God, and enjoy God forever. So this journey to know and participate in God's goodness is a forever act. And like we said last week, it's a journey, but not necessarily the destination. And why is this? Why are we always left seeking out God and not pinning God down? And I I honestly think we have this story from the book of Exodus to thank for that. The backstory on Moses is that he was born in a wave of infanticide to limit the population of Pharaoh's slaves, but he escaped it through a trip down the river in a basket where he was picked up by none other than the Pharaoh's daughter. He was allowed to be her son and grew up in the luxury of the palace, but the treatment of the Hebrews did not sit well with him. And after killing a slave master who mistreated the Israelites, Moses fled to the wilderness. He then married a woman and worked for her father herding the flocks out in the wilderness. And it was on one of these expeditions that Moses sees a bush that's on fire, but isn't being burned up. Fire is often associated with appearances of God. So Moses is very brave and takes a closer look. And that closer look kind of sealed his identity as the one who would then guide the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses tries to get out of it multiple times, but it sticks. One of Moses' parting questions and one of his ways to dodge his responsibility is to ask God for God's name, because no one's going to listen to Moses on his own terms and qualifications. And what is God's response? I am who I am. Or a better translation in the Hebrew is, I will be who I'm going to be. Now do you see why we have such a longstanding relationship with the question, who is God? 
From the beginning, God offers an answer that limits our ability to pin down, limit, manipulate, or otherwise trap God, right? I will be who I will be. In theological talk, we could call this the transcendent God. The God who is just beyond our grasp, the God who is more, is beyond, is holy, is separate from our understanding and our humanness. I had someone text me a question on pantheism this week, and I found it related to this question, right? Um, Pantheism claims that God is the universe that we see in front of us. The stuff of our lives is God. And I don't necessarily buy that, but partly because of this story in the Bible, God might be present in the world. The world might dwell in God's presence and love and energy, but God is not reduced to the rock or the sunset or the cuddling cat that I worship. (laughs) But if you're interested in that conversation, you should Google panentheism, which is um, a little partner theology. And it's the belief that God is present in all things, but is then not reduced to that presence, right? So God might be present in the rock, but God's not the rock itself. But this is obviously a theological digression. Back to our story about Moses. So Moses wants to know who God is for good reason. But God protects God's identity by saying, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. There is this dynamic nature to God that cannot be pigeonholed into our circumstances, our desires, be they good or bad, or our limited experience in the world. That's kind of the gist of the Ten Commandments as well, right? You will not go around making up all sorts of gods to follow. You won't pin God down in an image. Or I would say more pronounced later in history, you won't pin God down into a single metaphor such as uh, maybe father. God offers an understanding that must be approached in humility, in creativity, in paradox, in mystery. There is this transcendent nature of God that is separate from us. Tell the people I will be who I will be. But when was the last time you were in crisis and someone said, here, be comforted by this mysterious God that we can't quite pin down? (laughs) When was the last time the transcendent God, the mighty, thunder-booming, distant God, touched the deeper human and legitimate needs we have for connection and relationship and care and familiarity, right? As people go through the process of deconstructing their faith um, and often have to leave some of the clunky idols or metaphors behind that no longer serve a loving purpose, I often hear people going through this process express deep grief at the loss of intimacy they feel with God. In unknowing, harmful understandings of God, we often experience loss at the comfort of those understandings, that they, the comfort that they gave us kind of in this crazy world, right? Maybe not anymore, but at one point we felt that intimacy, but then we're left with this transcendent God, this mysterious God, who's all of a sudden kind of pulling off the straps of our understanding from themselves, right? That's what deconstruction does. And then we're left with not a whole lot to hold close, to hold that is familiar. And this can be one of the loneliest seasons of a changing faith. But I think that the extremely mysterious and transcendent God, the one that is beyond our naming and therefore beyond our idol worship or creation, that's not the full representation of God. It's actually not even a faithful reading of the story of Moses. It is overly easy to ask the question, who is God, and answer the great I am, of course. 
Because in the story for today, God doesn't actually give that answer first. If you back up in the story, God has already offered Moses some pretty important details on who God is. God initially introduces God's self first as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses is first introduced to God in the very familiar and intimate narrative of his family, of his history and his experience. God is knowable. God was present. God is intertwined with Moses's own story. God is not limited to that narrative or history, right? But God is known by Moses through it, through that experience. Christians throughout history, and Presbyterians in particular, have bounced back and forth in our many attempts to know God. We desire to respect God's agency apart from us and protect the fact that God is beyond our own thoughts and experiences. God's more loving than what we've experienced, more just, more glory-filled. We don't want to make God in our image. But balanced with this is God's nature to be found among us and through us as the God of people, particular people at that. God's actions and care are intimate and real and show up in the immediacy of the real world. And by this, we also know God. We see this intimacy in the Bible over and over in story after story. God says, I'm on the side of the poor and the marginalized. To know me is to love the least among us. That's where I dwell. Or you can consider Jesus, obviously for Christians, the most intimate view of God. And in Jesus's healing and his teachings and his truth telling, his friends, we see not the transcendent or separate nature of God, but the very, very imminent and intimate commitments God has in this world. We live in this paradox of a God who is among us, but also above us. What is the first line of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven. Even in that first line of the most famous Christian prayer, we are welcomed into this paradox. We are offered the intimacy of calling God our parent, or the Greek translation even more intimate, right? Something like daddy. Um, Yet that familiar God is spoken of in the very next phrase as being in heaven. And that in heaven phrase can be probably better understood less as a place and more as an acknowledgement that we're in the hands of someone above and beyond our own. God is our parent and in the best of ways is beyond what our best parent can offer. So where does this lead us as we think about what it means to answer the question, who is God? I think we can confidently say that God is known by us. We are invited to name the ways we see God and feel God and know God in our own experiences. These are often discerned in community or prayer or through the lens of scripture and the stories of tradition and our ancestors like Moses. God is the God of Abraham and Moses. God is the God of Janelle Holmes, right? God is the God of you. I think we could humbly also say that God is not limited by these or to these things as well. We can say we know God's character to be love, but we also make room for a God that is bigger than our experiences and expressions of love. Or as theologian Shirley Guthrie puts it, it's not our understanding of love that defines God, but God's action toward us that define what real love is. Believing in God, in a God who is both transcendent and imminent, is one of the many paradoxes of faith. Renowned Swiss Carl Jung wrote that only the paradox comes anywhere near to comprehending the fullness of life. And the paradox is one of the most valuable spiritual possessions. 
This paradox is a gift of faith to both comfort and protect us from reducing ourselves and God into categories and straitjackets that miss the actual depth of relationship, of living on this earth in these glorious and fragile conditions. Young goes on to say um, later on that, that only the paradox comes anywhere near to comprehending the fullness of life. And I'd also add comprehending what we need to comprehend of God. So get comfortable in the paradox. Be comforted that your assignment is not to know every detail about God, a God that is beyond our wildest imagination, but also be comforted that the imagination of God is wild. And so God shows up among us and in us and around us, tangible enough for us to trust and know and love that very same God. Not pin down, but hug. Not box up like a package, but unwrap like a present. This is the God we follow on our earthly journey and in the journey to come. Amen.